that the question, what kind of cities do we want to live in? How do we want our cities to be? Cannot be divorced from the question of what kind of people we want to be. What kind of humanity we wish to create amongst ourselves and how we want to create it. And it is that mutual constitution of the city and who we are and what we are that is something which is, I think, again, very important to reflect upon. This is The City, an hour dedicated to a critical discussion of urban issues. And welcome to the program here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, and syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, and available as a podcast at the city. FM.org. I'm Andy Longhurst. On the program, we reflect on the Michael Bloomberg era in New York City and what the election of Democrat Bill de Blasio means for inequality, public and affordable housing, and urban development more generally. Valerie Jean of Families United for Racial and Economic Equality joins me on the program to discuss these issues and more. You're tuned into the city, an hour dedicated to critical urban discussions. Stay with us. This is The City. Thanks for being with me. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, We're here Tuesdays uh, from 5 to 6 p.m. on CITR 101.9 FM in Vancouver and uh, online at CITR.ca as well. And uh, if you're listening syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM coming from Burnaby Mountain in Burnaby, British Columbia, uh, also at CJSF.ca, thanks so much uh, for tuning in. Also available as a podcast at thecityfm.org. On January 20th, the United States honored Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. with the annual federal holiday that marks uh, Martin Luther King Day. Martin Luther King Jr. was born on January 15th, 1929, and he was assassinated on April 4th, 1968, at the Lorraine Motel in Memphis, Tennessee. He was 39 years old. Dr. King is, Dr. King is largely remembered as a civil rights leader, but he also advocated loudly for improved conditions for the poor. He organized the Poor People's Campaign to address issues of economic justice. And on the program today, we'll be discussing issues of racial and economic equality in the context of New York City, and what the election of Bill de Blasio means for low-income and working people in New York City. By many accounts, under the leadership of Michael Bloomberg, uh, New York City has become a more unequal city. And uh, Bill, Bill de Blasio is a former New York City public advocate, uh, which is an elected position, um, and the equivalent might be an ombudsperson, um, but it is an elected position. So he was a city public advocate uh, previous uh, to now becoming mayor. And he won the mayoral election by a landslide, receiving over 73% of the vote. He is the first Democratic mayor elected since 1993. So on the program, we're going to be talking about uh, this context and uh, looking back at the Bloomberg years. Families United for Racial and Economic Equality, uh, known um, by its acronym FURY, 
EE, is a Brooklyn-based multiracial organization made up almost exclusively of women of color. They organize low-income families to build power to change the system so that all people's work is valued and all have the right and economic means to decide and live, live out their own destinies. They use direct action, leadership, development, community organizing, civic engagement, and political education to win the changes their members seek. Their guiding principle is that those directed effectively, directly affected by the policies they are seeking to change should lead the organization. Valerie Jean is the executive director of FURY, and I spoke with her by phone on January 17th at her home in New York City. I want to start out by asking you to talk about um, Fury's work. Um, you do some really important work, and uh, tell me tell me what you do. Okay. Um, so Fury stands for family. I want to start out by. And we're going to try that one more time with some better sound quality. Sorry about that. Um, so again, we're going to be hearing um, from Valerie Jean from Families United for Racial and Economic Equality. This is The City on CITR 101.9 FM, syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM. I want to start out by asking you to talk about um, Fury's work. Um, you do some really important work, and uh, tell me tell me what you do. Okay. Um, so Fury stands for Families United for Racial and Economic Equality. And we were founded um, almost 12 years ago uh, as a member-led organization. And so what that means for us is, like, you know, everything from board membership to what campaigns to go into to even the strategic plans for each of the campaigns uh, must take the lead of membership. And so for us, like, you know, the work that we've been doing um, has been around making sure that uh, families, particularly families of color um, and young people, that their basic needs are met uh, to help them to move out of poverty. And so from since we were founded, uh, we've won quite a bit, you know, of victories uh, from ensuring that child care providers that were subsidized by the city in, um, had pay increases. And that was like a $10 million win for us um, to... <clears throat> reopening a supermarket across the street from public housing that was closed by a developer. And so, you know, for us, like, you know, that what's really important about member being first or being the ones who are, like, you know, moving the campaigns forward and making decisions about campaigns is also testimony to that, you know, that low-income people do have ideas that actually work uh, to help to stabilize economies local and local economies. Um, and so, you know, the, the past 12, feels like forever, years uh, that we've been in operation, we've been, you know, primarily fighting against Bloomberg's policies, which um, at, you know, just like at any given time, really felt like it was he was just really focused on building a city for rich people as opposed to building a city for all people. Um, and so later on in our work, after we founded the Accountable Development Campaign, which came as a result of the Atlantic Yards being built um, and the affordable housing pieces have been, like, you know, one of the pieces that has really declined in the downtown Brooklyn area. Um, 
And so for us, it's just like, you know, it's really important to make sure that, you know, that we're moving families out of um, the homeless shelters and that families who are living in affordable housing have other affordable housing apartments that they can also move into. Can you can you talk about um, and reflect on the the Bloomberg era, um, and and that will lead us into talking about what you think the election of De Blasio means for for New York. Um, to talk a bit about Bloomberg's affordable housing. Yeah, or? I mean, just just give me a sense of for for people um, not from New York, um, but give us a sense of of development policies, um, the climate of, of development, um, and, and that era of um, what, what a lot of people in the city, um, working people, low-income people, um, have, been, have been dealing with over the last um, number of years. Okay. Um, so, uh, the easiest way to put it, or the way that we understand it, is that Bloomberg's like economic development policies were you know, we're about, like, building the uh, the economy of New York City on the backs of low-income people. And we say that because, you know, when you think about, like, all the different public incentives that were available for uh, people who were building housing, that many of it, like, you know, just really didn't translate into the number of affordable housing that's necessary to house low-income families in New York City. So, I mean, our first battle with Bloomberg wasn't even about housing. It was about making sure that the child care providers were being paid uh, money that they can sustain their own families with. And we didn't come about until, like, the housing side until a couple of years after. We were kind of, like, in the midst of, like, you know, getting low-income people to vote, targeting, you know, infrequent voters to go out and vote. And they realized that in one of the developments in downtown Brooklyn called Ingersoll Houses, that people just weren't answering the doors. So we figured, oh, well, maybe they're not home. We'll come back at a different time of day. Um, and when we did that, uh, the residents that we did manage to catch up with were like, well, nobody lives here. And we just saw, like, how widespread it was. And it wasn't until, like, you know, talking to residents and hearing what's been going on and also noticing ourselves because at the time we were – uh, our offices were like right in downtown Brooklyn that we noticed that there was like a lot of changes going on. This was in 2005 and it wasn't until then that we uh, did some more research and noticed that there was just this plan to make downtown Brooklyn into like the second, uh, you know, largest in terms of looking at Manhattan, uh, largest spaces for businesses and uh, offices and so on, but it didn't really include what would be the benefit um, to low-income people. Um, although, like, you know, you'll hear a lot about um, we're going to build this development and include affordable housing, there just really wasn't, uh, it didn't really translate into that. So what we saw was just um, at the same time, like this, all of this was going on, like you know, the back office space of Manhattan and, you know, like post 9-11 and kind of like talk about like what development should look like. What we noticed was like, you know, instead of building the office spaces that was going to, supposed to bring in more jobs to the area, that more condominiums were going up. Um, and so when we 
kind of like looked at like you know what that meant and how did that translate into like the number of people who were being evicted from their apartments um, to and, and not through any fault of their own like you know some people received notice that their building was going to be demolished and so they had to be out in 30 days and and so on and so when we noticed just like the the number of uh, developments that were like slated to come in um, and just kind of like the the energy, if you will, of mm-hmm. people in the neighborhood uh, who were just kind of like feeling like, what am I going to do? I can't afford to live anywhere else, you know. Um, and so we just kind of like begin to connect the dots, really. We've we've covered um, Fulton Mall um, just a bit on the mm-hmm. on this program, but can you give people a sense um, about what's what's happened um, and what happened under Bloomberg's watch in downtown Brooklyn, specifically around Fulton Mall? Well, around Fulton Mall, under Bloomberg's watch, what happened is, you know, the thing about Fulton Mall is just like Fulton Mall is like the third largest, uh, you know, um, shopping space in New York City after, um, you know, Fifth Avenue and, and so um and this is primarily from like people from all different backgrounds, right? Like not just people with money, but people who are said to not have money, right? Like regular day to day folks come in the shop at all the different mom and pop shops that were on the Fulton Mall strip. Um and what's happened uh, pretty much in the span of like, you know, about ten, twelve years is that a lot of these mom and pop shops are no longer there. It's Many small businesses were closed because they just couldn't afford the rents uh, that were there, or they were thrown out altogether because the building was going to be remodeled into something else. Um, and so now, what you're seeing now in downtown Brooklyn is just kind of like this melding of you know the few mom and pop shops that are left, but then like more big box retailers that are in. And we know um, just through our own research, like, you know, what we found is, like, mom and pop shops, like, yeah, they might provide, like, more jobs, but they're not reinvesting in the community as much as, like, the, the mom and pop shops were. And so this shopping center that was, I'm sorry, there's a lot of construction going on outside <laughs> my own neighborhood. No worries. Um, um, and so what we're seeing is just, like, you know, like, it's, Pretty much like, you know, like now you have like uh, these big box retailers that are in, but like it's pretty much like changed and shifted the character of downtown Brooklyn. And, you know, and it just kind of felt like, you know, like no matter what kind of argument you brought up to like the downtown Brooklyn partnership, which was one of the, you know, quasi-public-private conglomerates that was formed to kind of like oversee this development in downtown Brooklyn, um, for them, their talk is always about money. It's always about like how much money is going to be brought in and so on. But when you look at big box retailers, how much money they reinvest into the community, it's like it doesn't translate into much. Um, and so, I want to ask oh, you also sorry. how did how did race play into this as well? Well, I mean, race is <laughs> always you know like race is always um, a key factor for us. Um, so, like, you know, before, like, major development in the area, like, most small businesses were owned by people of color or managed by people of color, um, and these big box retail stores, like, you know, like, that's quite different. But then also, race was kind of, like, played into, right, like, how development happens and so on, and so this is kind of, like, unspoken in New York City, Mm -hmm. like, it's 
you know, it's it's in a way like nobody's ever going to say out of their mouths like, you know, well, we need to build it so that we can move black and brown people out of this area, out of this community. But the result of the actions uh, that were taken uh, has translated into that. Um, and, you know, the other way that race also plays a factor is in how people just view like what their own power is against something that they feel is not working out for them, right? Whether it's housing, small businesses, uh, whether it's the type of jobs that are happening and, and so on. Um, and so it's up to organizations like PRA to just kind of teach people about, like, you know, how does this play out in other parts of the world? How does this play out in other parts of the country? And what can we do to reclaim, you know, power over, um, you know, who we are as people of color, uh, to begin to pl- level the playing field around development, um, but then also to make sure that uh, people of color and low-income people are brought to the decision-making tables around how community development occurs. Do you think planners um, that were, I, I assume you had some engagement um, with with planners or um, the, the city um, departments involved in, in all of this, but... Um, is there an acknowledgement that that race and class are are involved and implicated in in these redevelopment or gentrification schemes, or do you find that there's an inability for them to acknowledge that that certain things get displaced and certain people get displaced? I it's a combination of both. You know, it, it depends who you speak to. Right, like you know, like there is an acknowledgement of like whatever development that goes on, um, and just looking at like you know who are the people who are most likely to be low income, um, you know, or no income, um, you know, like that definitely like, plays into the minds of some developers. Um, but then there are others who are just like they, it's just all about their money. Like if they can get the money from people of color, then they'll go for it. But if not, then they'll you know go for Plan B. Um, but I think, it, you know, like when, when you think of how like racism is pretty much um, spoken about or thought of, no one is ever going to admit like, hey, I'm doing this because I don't think that people of color can make enough money to earn, you know, to live in the apartments that I'm living in. But the reality is, you know, like many of the families that have moved in, like don't reflect the community that lived in downtown Brooklyn before. Right. Yeah. 
This is The City here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, and syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, and that's CJSF.ca. Also available as a podcast at thecityfm.org, and uh, check out past uh, past uh, podcasts at thecityfm.org. Uh, lots of stuff there, so go check it out. Uh, on the program, talking to Valerie Jean from Families United for Racial and Economic Equality. It's a Brooklyn-based multiracial organization made up almost exclusively of women of color. They organize low-income families to build power to change the system so that all people's work is valued and all have the right to the economic means to decide and live out their own destinies. We're going to continue with part two of my uh, conversation with Valerie. And I spoke with Valerie on January 17th at her home in New York City. I want to ask you now, um, we're, what, you know, not even a month into uh, de Blasio's, um, uh, his term, but I guess, can you reflect on if this is something significant? Um, do you see, do you see that there are, are likely to be changes um, in policies in New York or, um, or is it more of the same? Um, well, we, we like to hope that there will be more policy changes. I mean, de Blasio has, like, you know, he's announced, it, at least in uh, running for mayor, that he wanted to build more affordable housing, uh, that he's actually looking into, like, what other available city funds that are there to provide incentives to developers to increase affordable housing. Um, and that's all really promising, and he does come from, like, an affordable housing background and so on. Um, but, you know, in New York City, where, like, development is as of right, like, it's also up to the developers to determine, you know, like, what they want to do and how they want to do it. Um, and, you know, I mean, I, I just think that provided that the de Blasio administration is really thinking about, like, where the funding is going to come from and, you know, um, and then passing that on to the right kind of developer, that we can increase the affordable housing in a short amount of time. But it's going to take, like, you know, like determination um, as well as a will to make sure that, you know, everybody has a place to call to call home. Um, and that's going to have to fall through his administration, you know, like 100 percent, maybe 150 percent of the time. Um, because, you know, like we know in New York, like, you know, after the financial uh the financial business or economy, if you will, that housing is like the second most like income uh, generating work here in New York City. So, um, you know, we're staying hopeful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We'd like to be hopeful, um, but then we also know that there are different powers that be, like the Real Estate Board of New York, for example, uh, that that plays into a heavy role in like what happens with housing here in New York City. Mm-hmm. In uh, in the in the press, um, sometimes we hear a lot about the wait list for public housing in New York City. Um, is there any likelihood that that's going to improve, or that there there will be more um, New York public housing units um, coming online under De Blasio? Um, well, we <laughs> we certainly hope so. Mm-hmm. There, there's been you know too many public housing units that have just been like sitting off of their rent rolls. 
you know, we know like that the surge of homelessness um, has just like really increased under the Bloomberg administration. And so we're all like really looking for, you know, for people to be able to have a place to call home. Um, but public housing isn't just about like the city, um, you know, like the city manages it and runs it, um, but it is also like a call on federal government to like adequately fund public mm-hmm. housing budgets in order for, you know, apartments to be maintained and, and so on. We were talking about units that were built in the 40s, but like, you know, but then also under John Rare, who was the former commissioner of NYCHA, um, a lot of uh, repairs that could have been done on time are now costing more because they've been languishing for a while and have gotten worse and, and so on. Um, and so, you know, we certainly hope and, you know, when de Blasio was public advocate, like his office was just like really into what was going on with public housing and providing support, you know, to groups that were organizing around it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we hope that he carries that on, you know, moving forward. Um you know, but the the public housing thing is just like, you know, I think like a lot of times people think of all public housing residents are people who are like, you know, on public assistance and make no income. And, you know, it's, it's true for maybe about like 40-something percent, but the other 50-something percent are people who have jobs and, you know, who make quite a bit of income. So I think it's going to take just like really looking at like, you know, how do we increase uh, the budget for the housing authority? Um, without making it inaccessible for people who uh, really need that public housing, um, you know. So we're we're staying hopeful, but we're also being watchful at the same time because of the different elements that come into play. If I remember correctly, and and I believe this was um, some months ago, this was announced, but the plan to lease land that current um, public housing sits on for private market development. Um, is that can you do you can you provide an update on that and and what that where that's at? Um, so where it's at right now is like it's um, it was supposed to be uh, I guess contracts are supposed to be signed around like different you know like developments uh, during Bloomberg's administration I guess like they were trying to like you know make it happen in December so that the De Blasio administration would have to pick it up and so on so. No contracts have been signed to date, mm-hmm. um, although, um, you know, the housing authority is, like, under restructuring right now, right? So, like, the commissioner, uh, John Ray, is no longer there, so there is no housing commissioner. Um, although they are board members, um, you know, we just don't have a sense, or at least I don't have a sense of, like, what the timeline is for moving forward with uh, the land lease programs, but I do know that organizations that are located near the eight developments that were um, slated to be developed um, are, you know, just like really fighting and making sure that, you know, either A, it doesn't happen because we wouldn't want um, public housing residents to lose the little, little bit of open space that they have. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then also, like, you know, like, wouldn't want, like, these developments to create uh, a domino effect of like pushing families out. Um, so we're we're I guess we're like in this space of like it's January. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's only sure. like you know two or three weeks in, so we're just like all just like you know watching and and keeping our eyes focused on like you know what we feel is going to be the direction in this work. Right. 
Can you um, can you give us a sense of um, what what your public housing campaign um, is centered around and give us a sense of um, we're sort of talking about what's going on in New York City. But tell me more about um, about uh, Fury's work around public housing. Sure. So I work around public housing. I mean, we've been working with public housing residents since we were founded, uh, but we didn't uh, form a public housing campaign until about three years ago. Uh, and that was because at the time, the housing and urban development were like um, putting out a plan around just, you know, giving housing authorities the option to lease or, if you will, you know, for lack of a better word, uh, either like a building or their entire development to like private developers so that they can make up funding for that they just haven't been able to get from HUD. Um, and also, you know, there were just like so many, <laughs> so many complaints coming in about like the lack of repairs that were happening and that jobs were not happening uh, under uh, Section 3 and, and so on that we decided to form a campaign that focused specifically on the New York City Housing Authority and on HUD. And so the public housing campaign right now organizes uh, residents from six developments throughout Brooklyn. Uh, so it's not just like relegated to like what's happening in downtown Brooklyn, and there are also other communities that are involved in it. And from since our founding, like we've been able to like you know shape that policy that HUD was putting out, which is uh, now known as Petra. I'm sorry, it's known as RAD, <laughs> the Rental Assistance Development. Um, and uh, we've been able to get like quite a, a bunch of wins uh, from that. Uh, you know we. Uh, gathered residents from different developments and sued the housing authority around repairs. Um, and so like that, those repairs have been happening not just for the litigants in the um, lawsuit, mm -hmm. um, but in other residents that lived in the developments also. And that was done in partnership with South Brooklyn Legal Services. Um, and we've also been able to provide uh, direct policy recommendations uh, to HUD around like what should happen in the event of natural disasters because there's one development uh, called Gowanus Houses that uh, five of their buildings like were without heat uh, power um, for about 11 days following Superstorm Sandy. And that had like a major impact on residents, but like we learned like, you know, through just kind of like, you know, we, we don't provide services as an organization. So we just kind of like learned through that process of like, oh my goodness, like people need food, people need medical attention and so on, um, that there were just like so many different uh, problems that residents were facing, not just the fact that they didn't have power and electricity, um, power and heat, but they had like other health conditions and social conditions that were going on with them. Um, and so through that, we were able to uh, work with uh, Nydia Velasquez's office, and she's the congresswoman for that area, uh, to push for more funding to public housing nationally, not just, you know, here in New York. Um, and then we were also able to uh, provide, you know, recommendations that came from residents that were directly impacted uh, to put into a bill uh, that is on the House floor still, <laughs> and there's a whole other discussion about the House, but um, that just really called for, like, you know, resident-led planning around disasters, uh, training residents on how to deal with natural disasters, and making sure that um, the needs of people, particularly those who are the most vulnerable, are being met. Mm -hmm. um, and so our public housing campaign has been, it's been moving along. <laughs> 
Um, but, you know, I would say, like, you know, again, it's just like, you know, what for us is like our, our biggest concern is to make sure that people throughout the city understand that public housing is a place that many people call home. Right. Uh, you know, that it's where people have raised their families, where people have been living for generations, like, you know, for, you know, from like grandmothers to the children to the children's children are now living. Um, and we need people to really understand, like, it's home, right? It's not a large shelter system, um, not to take anything away from the shelter system, um, but it is, like, you know, made up of communities, of, of families, of people who do have, like, you know, futures uh, that they're planning on, but how can public housing better support uh, those dreams to come true? Can you talk about um, engaging residents in public housing and, and some of your strategies for organizing? Um, wh- what does that look like? And, and it sounds like you've had a number of successes, but um, sort of getting getting residents involved in in fighting for their own housing. Can you talk about that? Sure. I mean, our outreach efforts, like, always start with door knocking. <laughs> mm-hmm. We, you know, like, we always go door to door, let people know, and ask them, like, you know, like, our door knocking, our rule for us is, like, the residents should be speaking 75 to 80% of the time, uh, that the organizer is not the one that's doing all the talking. But we do a lot of, like, you know, just asking, like, you know, what is it that you feel like needs to be changed, and do you want to be involved in leading that change? Um and so, you know, you may speak to, like, a 1,000 people <laughs> and maybe 20 people show up, and that's common in all organizing work. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we work with the people who do show up, you know, so we do uh, leadership development work with them. Uh, they go through sessions that we call FIRE, which stands for Furious Institute of Resistance and Equality, and we break down, like, you know, what does race, class, and gender mean? What is the difference between community organizing and direct service? Um, how does the local economy tie to the global economy, mm-hmm. right, with, like, how, you know, policies are set and so on, uh, and even teach them how to, like, you know, identify a winnable campaign. Mm. Um, what are the different criteria that needs to be placed, and how can residents help to bring in other residents into this work? So, um and there's, like, a lot of, like, you know, one-on-one time with with people. So it's not just about calling them into, like, you know, these mass campaign meetings all the time, but then also just figuring out, like, individually, like, where do people want to take this work or where do they see themselves or how do they see themselves in that. And we uh, tailor our trainings for members um, to fit around, like, what people are asking for the most. So people might say, like, I, I want to improve my public speaking skills or I want to learn how to, um, do, you know, to facilitate a meeting to, you know, to I want to learn more about housing policy. Mm-hmm. Um, so we just kind of shape our trainings based on what people ask. And, um, you know, and then I would say, like, you know, at the end of the day, it's really about, like, what's in the hearts and, and minds of all of us, and it's really about, like, you know, making sure that New York City is more equitable for the people that are living in it. Can you talk about the work you do around um, youth leadership development and youth organizing? Sure. Uh, So our youth organizing arm is called Furious Youth, and, you know, it, it took a while, you know, it took, like, a whole lot longer to determine a campaign with them because, um, you know, young people, I think, lead busier lives than adults do. <laughs> um, and so what they landed on was working on a campaign that was about making sure that young people had 
uh, more opportunities for employment in New York City. So they released a report that they worked on with the Urban Justice Center around the state of youth jobs uh, that, you know, people think about like the summer employment, summer youth employment program, for example, it's just like, oh, it's just something that they're doing for like a few weeks throughout the summer. It doesn't need to be important. But many young people would like, you know, that to help them to figure out like what kind of careers that they get into. And that also that they're not just being paid in what we call like the 99-day gig um, or the 89-day gig where like, you know, before three months that they're like fired so that they don't get like, you know, health benefits and, and so on and the jobs that they're uh, that they signed up for, um, and just looking at the fact that, you know, in in this world, if you will, like, you know, like many young people are also parents, like they're heads of household, and so how do we, like, help to set their lives um, in a way that's more sustainable for their families, for their own families? Uh, so the Youth Jobs Campaign, which is called the No Money, No Problems Campaign, <laughs> and that's the name that they came up with, uh, has been, you know, like uh, over the past several months, has been meeting with elected officials around like their policy recommendations and just really figuring out like how can more funding be allocated to different youth employment programs, but then also how can the Department of Labor, uh, the Department of Education, and the Department of Youth and Community Development can work together to make sure that youth employment programs uh, are are really translating into like helping them to figure out like their own careers. Okay. Um, yeah, so they've been great. It's been fun. <laughs> that sounds great. C- can you give me a sense of uh, your your priorities moving forward for the next year? Well, we still haven't determined those yet because <laughs> we're like watching and plus like the weather hasn't allowed us to like really call for a full meeting. Right. Um, for current priorities or ongoing priorities um, are making sure that um, affordable housing is being built in downtown Brooklyn. Uh, for the public housing campaign that repairs are being made and that uh, jobs are happening for residents through Section 3. Uh, Section 3 is a federal mandate uh, requiring public housing uh, developments to provide at least 30% of the jobs, uh, uh, yeah, at least of the 30% of jobs that are there to eligible residents um, and um, people who live in the community that is like in proximity to public housing. Um, and the youth are still working on their youth jobs campaign. Like their primary focus is to uh, to get the budget for some youth employment program reinstated, uh, but then also to get like more comprehensive youth jobs programs happening uh, in New York City. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then our fourth is not like a campaign, but it's like a project that supports all of our campaigns is around voter engagement. Um, and just ensuring that low-income uh, people are voting regularly, but then beyond that are engaged in work that holds elected officials accountable to the things that they've promised. Um, and I would say, like, since we started doing voter engagement work, we've gotten more than 10,000 unique voters uh, to vote regularly in the communities that we serve. Wow. Great. You're busy. <laughs> Before I let you go, Valerie, is there anything else um, you want to leave my listeners with? Oh, sure. Um, You know, to, I guess the the really important thing for us is, you know, for listeners to remember is that low-income families are families as well. They have the same needs that we all have. We all want 
to make sure that, you know, that our children have a future. We all want to make sure that we have a home to live in. And we certainly feel that, you know, government should work towards making sure that families are, you know, are given the opportunity to succeed. Um, and, you know, if something just feels awkward or funny, if something any elected official just kind of like, you know, puts out there just feels funny or awkward, it probably is. And so we always encourage people to organize as much as you can. It doesn't have to necessarily be with an organization. You can start on, on, on your own, but holding um, elected officials accountable, holding businesses accountable is what's going to help to make sure that equity happens um, everywhere. Valerie, it was really great to talk to you, and I want to thank you for your time. Thank you so much for inviting me to speak. And that was Valerie Jean, and she is the executive director of Families United for Racial and Economic Equality, a Brooklyn, Brooklyn, New York-based uh, organization. And I think it's uh, just important to, to keep in mind uh, what's going on in other cities um, as we reflect back on Vancouver, Canada, um, North America, um, beyond North America, to think about um, organizing and how people do it, how people engage one another in issues that matter, um, things as basic as housing, um, how people engage their neighbors and and work for change, work for um, positive change in their communities. So again, it was a real pleasure to, to talk uh, with Valerie um, from Fury and uh, interesting discussion. Also, um, some some interesting um, fights and challenges and uh, around social around uh, what we would call social housing in Canada, but public housing um, in the United States, in New York City, especially. So uh, lots, um, lots in that interview to think about, and um, we'll be revisiting this um, in coming weeks with um, with a scholar from uh, New York City, and that will probably be in the next couple weeks. So, talking more about what the election of Bill De Blasio means for New York City, and reflecting on the uh, Michael Bloomberg years um, for uh, for implications around development policies and inequality, and much more. This is The City here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, and it's syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, CJSF.ca, and available as a podcast at thecityfm.org. I'm Andy Longhurst. Uh, for the next uh, 10 minutes or so, um, we're going to hear some tracks, um, some more uh, music from Sharon Jones um, from, from New York City, um, and uh, some additional music as well, um, some uh, Canadian uh, content, I think some Bear Mountain for you as well. So stay with me um, for the rest of the hour. Thanks again for tuning in here Tuesdays 5 to 6 p.m. live on CATR and syndicated on CJSF from 10 to 11 a.m. on Fridays. Stay with us. Nobody could hold me. hold me And cheaters will fail That's what we all learn Cheaters never prosper Now there is a man who was born with a fortune A hard day's work He's never
This is The City here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM. If you missed any part of the program, you can check it uh, check it out at thecityfm.org. And uh, be sure to follow The City on Twitter with the handle thecityfm, uh, thecity underscore fm, and on Facebook by searching The City Critical Urban Discussions. Again, I'm Andy Longhurst. Thanks so much for tuning in. That was a track from Bear Mountain. We've got one more from Sharon Jones coming up. Have a great week.
And if you're listening to CITR, you've got FlexiRed coming up next at 6 p.m. And if you're listening syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, you've got Democracy Now! coming up next with Amy Goodman. Thanks for tuning in.